Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And those interesting people include Emily Jashinsky, <laughs> as she kept calling me out because I kept saying, and Emily Jashinsky, as though she is not very interesting herself. Um, she is an IWF senior fellow with us, um, and she is also out over at GAF teaching the next generation of, of right wing uh, journalists, how to do the journalisms better than the mainstream media. And of course, she is the culture editor over at The Federalist and uh, the co-host of Breaking Points with Ryan Grimm, uh, or Counterpoints with Ryan Grimm on Breaking Points, which just broke a million subscribers. So congrats for that, uh, on that, Emily. And well, welcome back to High Noon. I was going to say thank you, but that all the credit there goes to Sagar and Crystal, who built an empire um, and are just super impressive and speaking to, I think, what a lot of people feel like is they just... The, don't feel represented in the media and they don't feel like the media is telling them truth. And I'm sure we'll get to some of that. Yeah. Speaking of being disappointed, uh, we have two front likely front runners for each respective party uh, going into this 2024 election that one are both deeply underwater in terms of popularity. They're both very unpopular figures um, in American politics. And now uh, as of, of this week, it seems uh, very likely that uh, we have created a situation, and I mean we writ large, um, where each one of those potential candidates from the two parties uh, essentially has to win this next election or go to jail. Um, <laughs> Trump, for the obvious series of indictments, both in the state and then the, now the federal level in terms of refusing to turn over classified documents. So it's really a procedure crime he's being charged with. Um, and then Biden. Now we have um, out this week whistleblower allegations from IRS agents saying that the DOJ and the FBI basically tipped off Hunter, Hunter to a lot of the investigations. And they're claiming that this text message from Hunter um, to essentially corrupt Chinese interests um, is where he's literally talking about sitting next to his dad. Um, he says, I'm sitting next to my father right now. You better call me with this money or my dad's influence is going to be turned against you. And he says that like very directly, actually in a funnier way than I just said it. But um, that's, I think, a fair summary. Uh, so we now have a piece of evidence in out in the public that potentially ties Joe Biden to his son's corruption. Um, all of that to say, basically, it's Winner jail for these two guys. What does that mean for American politics and for the country? Hmm. Winner jail is the right framework for that because I think that's what's new in American politics, right? Like there's always been sort of endemic corruption, um, and that's a you know a hard thing to avoid. I think it's at a it's happening on a with greater intensity and on a, a bigger scale. And the Hunter story is actually the perfect example of that. You know, there there's something so shameless about what Hunter Biden was doing before. By the way, we know that he was struggling with crack addiction and like this very in the throes of a very serious drug addiction. We're going to have a piece up at the Federalist um, by George Beebe talking about exactly. Um, how we, you know, we, we know Hunter Biden um, was doing a lot of this sort of shameless influence peddling uh, in the timeline before, before he uh, started struggling with substance abuse after Bo Biden's death. And a lot of this was just happening in full public view and nobody in Washington was batting an eyelash, an eyelid, whatever the saying is, um, but in, in, because they were, you know, in, in some ways, everybody's kind of implicated in that. And in, in D.C., at least, uh, that's not to say that Inez is implicated in that or that I am implicated in that. I wish I was implicated in that because, uh, you know, we, we probably could have avoided some of the tech difficulties because we both would have state-of-the-art microphones. <laughs> 
<laughs> paid for by Burisma, um, but or Vladimir Putin. Um, but you know, that's one of the things with Hunter Biden that I think is a, a worthwhile takeaway is just how shameless it was to begin with. Um, at the same time, though, we're now in an era where you, know, you and I may have the lock them all up perspective, you know, in a different period of politics, you know, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're corrupt, you should, you know, be if you're, if you're corrupt on a felonious, uh, serious level, then yeah, you should go to prison, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. But what we have now is very clearly a two-tiered system of justice. And um, that means fire is going to be returned with fire. And that leaves us exactly the place that you said, Inez, which is really well said. And I actually don't think um, internalized. I don't think like our, our dialogue about Hunter Biden is is really, I think, missing exactly what you just said. It's you know, it's it's so heavily about Hunter Biden. It's not nearly enough about Joe Biden, but um, it also just misses the point that it's it's Trump or Biden, and uh, the other side is going to nab the other. Like it, it doesn't matter. Like that's the point that we're at, and it's not because um, you know we have two particularly corrupt people, although that may <laughs> that may be the case. Um, whatever would happen, you know, whomever gets office, they're going to. I, I honestly believe that if Nikki Haley were elected president of the United States at this point. Uh, Democrats would find a way to make the case for impeachment over Nikki Haley. Now, Nikki Haley might not automatically start trying to impeach Joe Biden uh, or, or impeach, you know, she, she wouldn't, she's not here calling for the impeachment of Joe Biden that I'm aware of. Um, but yeah, I, I really think like the, where the average of both parties is, is exactly as you said, um, impeach, impeach and stretching to match the two tiers of justice. And I don't begrudge anyone um, for for doing that. But um, I said George B2B earlier, by the way, I think I'm a Matthew B2B, but um, I don't begrudge anyone for doing that. I just think it's obviously what you said, like end of late Republic nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) That's another another Dave Reboy phrase. Yeah. uh, Late Republic nonsense. Um, I mean, I hope it's late Republic and not late Empire nonsense, but uh, Mm -hmm. see that going either way, I think. But I don't know. I, I, I guess... I don't think that corruption has always been endemic to American government in some like minor ways. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, that's okay, on, I on should local, say that's what on I meant. a local level. Yes. I mean, obviously yeah. cities like Chicago and New Orleans, um, corruption is sort of endemic to the way that the cities function. Mm-hmm. Um, Philadelphia, you know, famously New York for a long time, I think a little bit less so now that not really. Um, but on the national level, actually, I mean, it, it is actually, especially with all of the um, sort of volatile news coming out of, of Eastern Europe and Russia, it's worth remembering how remarkable it is, because I think this is actually a distinction um, that can be drawn vis-a-vis China as well, how remarkable it is that even so in America, even as degraded as our culture is, and the fact that we have these two guys who might, you know, either one of them might end up in jail at any moment um, running for president, stuff gets from point A to point B without being stolen. In America, mm. you know how remarkable that is in, mm. in, the, in the governments in the world. Yeah. Um, it makes America a, a king of logistics, right? Um, it, it makes it it makes deploying our enormous wealth uh, militarily very very effective for us in a way. Like I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we saw this, of course, with the Russian army and invasion, but um, it, it's true for most governments. It's true for China. They have an enormously difficult time getting things from point A to point B without having them like diverted and cut several different times. I have a friend who lived in um, told this story, I think, before, but I have a friend who lived in a second tier um, Chinese city for a year. And 
sometimes the trains would, they were supposed to be running all day, but sometimes around 11 or 12, people would just say, no more trains today. And it's because they were privately commandeered, like right. to make someone some money on the side. Um, and similarly, another friend of mine who lived in China, I mean, they ended up eating after several months of just getting burned by this too many times. They just ended up eating Papa John's basically every day um, because there was no way to get food um, for any, basically any price that had not been cut with a bunch of things that were making people sick. Right. You're, and it wasn't because the, the vendors themselves, so they were trying to do the best they could um, to sell clean food to people. Um, but at every stage of moving anything from point A to point B, you know, bread, flour would get cut with sawdust and the excess sold off. Right. Or uh, buying bottles of alcohol, the, the real alcohol would be poured out. And basically, you know, the kind of moonshine that makes you go blind would be poured in. Right. It's, it's actually a pretty remarkable thing. There's I think American culture and American society is pretty low corruption. It's probably a, a legacy of our sort of Protestant, um, Protestant culture. But I mean, I, I understand. Ex I accept your theory as a Lutheran. I accept your theory. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think you're totally right. Like, well, first of all, you're trying to make China sound bad to me and saying that people have to eat Papa John's every day. It's just a really sort of uh, unfortunate anecdote that you use to, to uh, build your case in there. No, the way, no, just, just that, that, Actually, the only place to safely eat in China is an American chain with American mm -hmm. logistics. The secret to Papa John's, I think, in the post-Papa John era is getting the thin crust. Um, and just trust me on that. I think it, it might save some people uh, some some angst in the future. But I, I, I do think you're like, I, I should have been more specific and said that it, there, there was endemic probably wasn't the right word, but like there was constant low level corruption as there always will be. Um, and, you know, like various localities, cities, like there's just no way to have 100% corruption free society. But this, this may be a point you're getting to something I've been thinking about a lot lately is like reading the so-called robber barons um, sort of reflections on their uh, eventual charity and like Carnegie who um, ended up getting a lot of grief, but then whether sincerely or, or not, you know, sort of decided to go on this, this charitable journey. Um, a lot of that I think really stems from something you would know about better than I would, but it was the small sense of like small R sense of Republicanism, like what Tocqueville wrote about and whether or not, again, it was sincere because you had the sort of elite families who were beholden to these virtues because they believed in God and felt as though they were held accountable by God in a lower tech society, et cetera. Whether that or not that's the case, there was also this public accountability. Um, you know, it would be shameful and embarrassing um, to to be Hunter Biden in 1883 um, in a way that it is not shameful or embarrassing to be Hunter Biden in 2023. Yeah, I mean, it'd be shameful to be Hunter Biden, I think, in uh, 1995. <laughs> right. Well, um, it should have been. Yeah. yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit in relation to some of the stuff that Michael Lind has been writing about labor and capital. And mm. also I've been thinking about it in relation to um, this book that one of actually my high school compatriots, Malcolm Harris, who's on the far left, um, wrote about our hometown, Palo Alto, that I'm, I'm getting through right now. Um you know, having labor and capital existing in the same town uh, and in a Christian framework, I think, was an enormous check on exploitation, I think, running both ways. Right. Um, and in many ways, I mean, I, I don't agree with Malcolm's overall assessment, of course, of, of America as a, a Marxist uh, that he is. But mm -hmm. um, I, 
I do think that there's something about importing labor or outsourcing labor away from where the money um, is being invested and made on both sides. Now, to some extent, right, this is libertarian economics. It, it, um, it, it may increase the GDP. We get be- you know, better mm-hmm. products for a lower price, but it, it also removes one of those key checks in which uh, you know, the guy who owns the factory and the workers who work in the factory actually have to go to church in the same places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have to sh- grocery shop in a lot of the places. And you can talk about how those things have pulled apart even within the same city and how um, sort of wealth segregated we are. And Charles Murray has lots to say about that, but um, it's even more extreme where you can outsource your, source your labor to another country or alternatively in California, import a labor force that doesn't have a lot of ties um, to the place. It's just getting their feet under them, right? Um, doesn't have the kind of expectations that like more settled labor might have, doesn't have the ability to organize in the same way. Um, I'm, I'm obviously no no communist, but um, there does seem to be that- a way to start a sentence. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think there's been something um, lost in in the sort of negotiating, the negotiation and bargaining between labor and capital seems to have broken down in a way uh, because of globalism, because of mass immigration and because of lots of other factors in a way that, for example, Germany, because they have those like weird, like uh, sort of cartels almost of like professionalized labor and stuff, um, they still seem to be able to have a capitalist economy um that that is sort of well ordered but but they still have this negotiating back and forth with organized labor in a way that seems to have broken down in america Mm -hmm. i think that's right um and and actually carnegie's path is instructive of this i was having this conversation with christopher bedford of the common sense society mutual friend of ours and he pointed out he was like do you really think Carnegie, like when he he was writing these letters and when he was reflecting on wealth, was sincere in any of that? Like he had been caught essentially um, and was reacting to that. And and my thought, my response to that is basically like, uh, okay, like what what does it really matter? Like that might be the case, but it's about social norms. Um, and around the time of the Industrial Revolution, you have Marx and Nietzsche, but particularly Nietzsche. Um, we've talked about this many times, like, uh, how do we replace God, you know, when it's technologically impossible to believe in God or technologically becomes irrational to believe in God, um, you know, what, what is rational for the human being? And that is, you know, being eroded at the time. And it, it takes, I would say, you know, arguably the century after that to fully come to fruition in the year of t- 2020 um, in the West. And, you know, though we saw, you know, it breaking to the surface here and there, but, um, the, the social norms had not been corroded. And the fact of the matter is that Hunter Biden, um, the, the Hunter Biden, as Matt Beebe writes about in 2008, that was starting Rosemont Seneca, whatever year it was, they started Rosemont Seneca and started uh, very clearly and not discreetly at all trading on his father's name with these foreign businesses. This was all happening in daylight. What Tony Podesta and Paul Manafort were doing with uh, the Ukrainian, the European Center for a Modern Ukraine, this was all happening in daylight. Podesta in particular, I remember looking at the logs um, when he had to, you know, actually disclose things that he never disclosed of his meetings with the State Department, and they were vast. (laughs) And this is all happening in plain sight. His meetings with media 
all happening in plain sight. Like it would have been difficult to show your face at, you know, whatever the 1880s version of the White House Correspondents Dinner was, um, you know, if you had been Hunter Biden personally and professionally. Um, and, and because Hunter Biden, you know, there was a lot of attention on him. It's not to say people weren't doing bad things. It is to say when they were caught, there was a different sense of, I think, shame for elites who now are able to, A, have other elites cover up their mistakes and paper over them and, and smudge them, um, and B, are just like fully in control and, and people rarely cover, you know, all of the insider trading in Congress, for example, um, until, you know, once in a while it breaks out, but nothing ever happens about it. And the media doesn't pressure anyone to make sure anything happens about it because it's just not on their, the, their plates. It's just not on their radars as to what's important. Do you think the corruption charges and now evidence um, hurts Biden more than it hurts Trump? Uh, because it seems like Trump's peel has always sort of, <laughs> I think even his biggest fans would acknowledge that he has not always operated above board in his business dealings or anything else. And in fact, he acknowledges it, right? I mean, he, he ran on it in 2016. He was like, yeah, I know exactly um, you know what's going on because I pay these people and they give me favors and um, that's what I've been doing as a billionaire, but that, that's how I'm, I'm going to take the whole system down. Now, whether he's you know able to do that, totally different story. Um, but Biden really, his appeal is really, or at least seemed to me to be some kind of return to normalcy. We're going to have like a n- normal calm seas. Um, and, and if we're not going to have calm seas because of, of world events, then at least we have somebody in the white house of whom we can, we can not be ashamed. Right. Um, <laughs> And so it seems like it might hurt him more. What do you think? That is a really good theory because um, a quote that's been in my mind from Donald Trump in the last week or so, an old quote from 2015 and 2016, I think he said it more than once, but he said, um, I alone can fix it. And it was in this context of him knowing the system. And, you know, it's not like he went out there and was like, listen, I'm corrupt so I can fix corruption. But that was kind of the implication of all of this. He's basically saying, like, I'm a businessman who's been in the room when uh, people are talking about these trade deals and lobbying Congress and, um, you know, taxes, et cetera, et cetera, so I can fix it. And and that was the implication of the, the it was a, an implied campaign argument and in a, a pretty central way. You have this billionaire businessman who knows the swamp. He's telling us all about it. He knows it. He says he's been there and that's why he can fix it. Um, so I do think that's really baked into the Trump cake. Uh, I, I also though think, you know, there's a, a powerful strain of the DeSantis, um, the, the DeSantis case that is if he makes the argument well, it does make Trump vulnerable by casting his legal problems as a, a giant distraction and saying, you know, Ron DeSantis, I think, is well equipped to make that argument because he says, I've gotten all this stuff done in Florida um, and, and you know, no distractions. Like we basically just you know, say, screw you, Disney, and get on with the get on with things like pass legislation. We don't really care. We just we move on. And so I think there there's a world in which that is hurtful to Trump if that argument is made well. Um, but it. Biden's on Biden's side, yeah, he was restoring normalcy. And that was a huge part of his pitch. And that's, I think, why he wins his primary in 2020s, because it felt to, voters felt that a Biden presidency would be a more normal presidency He's a familiar face. He's an older face, meaning, uh, you know, he's, he's not representative of anything scary and new, like a lot of the left is. And for him, then, to now have been president, and, and not have the normalcy, 
that people expected to see from him. But in fact, to have more like what feels at least like more rancor and pain and strife, um, then yeah, like that's, it does. If, if, if this is one of those things that emphasizes that one of his big campaign narratives is a lie. Yeah. I think that's hugely consequential to your point. Yeah. I mean, or um, people are just so exhausted that they now assume that everything is corrupt. I mean, to the point like where you felt compelled to use the the term endemic corruption, right? Which I don't (laughs) think is supported in American history, but is perhaps supported by the last, you know, several elections. I mean, but look, it seems to me that that was Biden's pitch, but maybe it's, it actually, his pitch is just, I'm not Trump. And maybe that's enough that, that Mm. might be like, um, you know, Trump, brings a huge turnout and he also engenders a huge hate turnout from Democrats and people who just really, really don't like him. Right. Um, so anyway, I mean, I, I'm not in the the game of, of making these predictions, but it, it does seem like the, the central pitch that Biden made in 2020 is much less true, not only because of his presidency, but now because he's sort of tarred with the same endemic corruption brush, but I mean, having the media in your pocket and and being willing to to like brush it over with, oh, I love my son, um, might I mean, hell, it might work. I don't know. Yeah, and like we're we're not the like uh, dumb pundits who sit there and say because X then Y. Like we know that like it's so much more complicated, and it's all of these different factors that are playing together and overlapping. And if there's a snowstorm in Nevada, um, you know, one of those factors is going to matter more than another. And we're not going to know about that until maybe the day before there's a snowstorm predicted on election day in Nevada. Like it's just really these prognostications are um, exhausting. But to the point that you also just made, that's another problem for Trump um, is that he said he was, I've seen DeSantis hammering this a lot lately. And it's not just DeSantis who can make this argument or the other argument about distractions. Like, Donald Trump said he was going to come drain the swamp and DeSantis is out there saying, okay, did you do it? Um, that it's, it's the benefit or it's the disadvantage of having been in office for both Trump and Biden. Biden doesn't bring America back to normal. Trump doesn't drain the swamp. That does take the air out of their sails a little bit on some really central parts of their pitches. Yeah. Well, um, certainly hasn't, hasn't helped DeSantis in, in the polls. It seems like he's actually losing ground, not even vis-a-vis Trump, but vis-a-vis all these other people who are now in, in the race, um, in some of these polls, not massively. I mean, he's hanging on to his basically, you know, one fifth to one quarter of the electorate. Um, and look, Trump, Trump won with a third of the electorate mm-hmm. of the Republican electorate in 2016. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, the race is far from over, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's a fair, thing to say that, you know, Trump is now the presumptive front runner and and probable nominee of the Republican Party and that Biden is the I mean, there's a lot more things that could happen with Biden, too. Um, Uh, Whatever could you mean? And those actuarial tables are, uh, you know, Biden may be defeated by the actuarial tables before we. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I have no idea what you what you could possibly mean in those. (laughs) It's a sad thing to say. I mean, in all seriousness, I do really, I hold a special place of hate in my heart for um, the, what is it, Giselle Fetterman and Jill Biden oh, yeah. for allowing, like, this This is something that if, if you have a man, like, totally separate from politics, like, if you have a man, um, a husband, and you love him, and you let him go and embarrass himself repeatedly, I mean, Biden just said, God save the queen at the end of his <laughs> What is this like new thing also is like best of luck in your senior year? Huh? 
I, my favorite one that he's said lately is best of luck in your senior year. Have you heard him say that? <laughs> no. Why? <laughs> but I guess the, this just means it's time for us to have a conversation about Jarrett. <laughs> Jarrett, Jarrett is in full mental faculties. Um, so says you. Yeah. Well, that's, that's uh, truly, I, I do find it like really gross. gross on a personal level. It's, it's a disgusting moral impulse. Um, and yeah, I mean, but what can you do? Like this is, it is funny, actually, speaking of Jarrett, he had a great column um, for the Daily Signal over at Heritage, just um, reminding us all of all the, the 25th Amendment discussions while Trump was president, right, about being incapacitated in various ways because they didn't like what he said or did. Say what you want about Trump. Like, and I know he's an old guy, too, and I'm not thrilled by, you know, these two guys from 1946 running again. Um, that being said, I mean, Trump seems vigorous and put together in that sense i mean he seems very similar to how he always was um i don't really see the you know like the the um i don't see that argument working the same way on trump simply because he doesn't seem that old he seems like he's still plenty energetic for the role and he doesn't seem like he's in mental decline and like just that's the way the cookie crumbles when you get that old some people are doing just fantastic into the even into their 90s and some people are not um Mm -hmm. and that's that's just the hand that fate deals, but um, did you just call him vigorous? He is vigorous. No, you're right, but it's it's uh, it's a little hot when you say it like that, Inez. <laughs> no, it's a description. Um, no, he he seems like uh, you know what I'm saying. He has like energy when he walks around. Virile. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he's he's uh, I think that was actually one um my my mentor David Azarad he'll laugh at that but um wrote this piece about the virtues of Trump and one of them was like like manliness and virility or something like that. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Azarad. No, but but uh, it's it's just not going to land the same way. The, the attacks about being old are not going to land the same way on Trump because they just don't apply in the same way. I think. Right. Um, but. I actually wanted to move on from predictions about 2024, which are my least favorite activity. Um, I mean, it has to be done. It's so important for the country, but it also seems in some fundamental way disconnected. As you've you've always, um, I think, rightly pointed out, we have all of these both structural and then cultural, like large cultural problems that underlie our politics that just don't get the airtime that they deserve. Um, they don't even sort of seem to bubble up to the surface. When we talk about these elections, they're not on anyone's presidential agenda, uh, mm. but they're factors that seem to really actually influence um, the lives of Americans. You've, you've pointed out obesity. The uh, This one gets a little bit of play, but the, um, uh, the fentanyl crisis and overdose crisis in the United States, right? These are things that affect a lot more people's lives in some way than a lot of the things that we talk about in our politics, but get very little place in them. Um, one of those sort of cultural fights that has gotten a lot of airtime um, is the fight this month over pride. Mm. Um, and now that we're coming to a close, this is our wrap up for the month of June. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts have been on how, has this this month been different then? Uh, I feel like I'm asking the the Seder questions. How is this month different <laughs> from all other months, right? Uh, <laughs> no, but how is it different than, than Pride Months in the past? Do you think that this is a backlash that is sustainable or um, sustainable past sort of an immediate uh, couple sort of taken down a couple companies, right? Bud Light, Target, um, 
and has achieved some amount of pullback. Uh, but what what are your predictions for how what this means? The fact that we have seen for the first time some substantial backlash against Pride. This is the first Pride where I think it's been conspicuous to even the left that the T in the LGBT is threatening the LG, and because it's become you know you're you're sort of able to isolate the variables. And look at, you know, public opinion on gay marriage, which I know you and I have talked about, you know, going up and fluctuating and perhaps in in interesting directions. But uh, this time around, when you have people wondering, you know, why are why would Bud Light uh, walk away from Dylan Mulvaney? Um, Why would Target, you know, take down some of these pride displays? I've heard it even happening like in coastal locations. Um, Why would they do that? Because people reacted not to the LG part of LGBT, um, the reports of Starbucks potentially, I don't know how true they are, but you have some of the Starbucks union workers saying that they've been suspiciously instructed not to emphasize pride displays, not to put up decorations. Um, why would Starbucks, a pioneer um, for, for gay rights on the corporate level, one of the, the very early proponents on the corporate level that was out ahead of the country on um, gay rights, before Obama, before Biden, why would they in 2023 uh, be de-emphasizing pride? It's interesting. And I think the very obvious answer that has been very clear this month is the T. That the T is, um, it, it feels excessive and wrong to Americans that when you're seeing uh, to a good chunk of Americans, probably a majority of, of Americans, and I think there are probably way too many Americans who would defend uh, books like Gender Fluid, including Pen America, um, it should be said, one of these great free speech civil liberty groups, um, defending Gender Fluid in high school libraries or accessible to even younger students, defending Dylan Mulvaney, like these these obvious excesses, these radical characteristics of the LGBT movement that are disproportionately the T, um, you know, pride parades with children around um, where, you know, this isn't necessarily a T thing, although it happens at certain drag brunches and stuff where there's, there's nudity and just explicit sexual content. Um, conservatives, many conservatives would argue that this is inextricably intertwined, that there is, this is a necessary consequence of what happened on the LGB part. Um, but at least to a lot of like normal people who are probably still supportive of gay marriage, that T part uh, feels disconnected. It feels unnecessary and it feels extreme. And and that I think over the course of the last month has been conspicuous in a way it hasn't in previous pride months. And I also, I don't know about you um, have felt that independent media has hit a point of critical mass where it's actually really um, bypassing the gatekeepers uh, in a way that's super meaningful, not just relegated to sort of the activist wings of either party, but that like between uh, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Glenn Greenwald, um, you know, the Inez Stepmans of the world. Um, the, but you know what I mean? Like, the, I, I feel like it's also hit critical mass. And a lot of these stories are circulating in ways that reach average Americans and they wouldn't in the past. Yeah, no, I think it's a definitely true. And um more or less that argument that you just made was um, basically what a lot of folks who are gay on the right, or at least on the like sort of center left where they're critical of wokeness, um, more or less said to Brid- Bridget Bettacy over at The Spectator. They have this piece up um, called Why Pride Lost the Public. And she basically asks some of these folks on the right or on the center left, um, what has happened? You know, do you feel a shift in terms of 
And most of their responses were pretty much what you just said, like that the T is sinking us all, right? That um, actually average Americans very accepting of, of homosexuality, of gay, of gays and lesbians, still very supportive of gay marriage, but are um, shocked by the T part. And that's probably true as an assessment of where the American public is. I'm less certain because you kind of alluded to it at the end, right? I think it does beg the question, um, what are the connections between these these things, right? So we have a lot of folks um, even on the right, like Douglas Murray, who's a friend of mine, like smart guy. Um, so it's not that I don't like these folks or anything, but it strikes me as though this actually is a moment to think about what the consequences of the sexual revolution really have been. And, and maybe there are some consequences that we like, um, but we have to think about now how inextricable some of those consequences that we like are from the consequences that we don't like. And now maybe that's not the case. Maybe they're not that connected. Um, but this is why, so Spencer Clavin, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, uh, like he, he has a really great thread on this, I think talking basically about, yeah, we, we need to think about, how these things may or may not be linked. We don't get to just brush this under the rug and say, these things have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to actually have this conversation. And, and I think the explosion of books about the sexual revolution from a, with a critical lens, right, um, coming out, a lot of them from turf type authors and, right, um, Louise Perry. I think there is this moment. We talked about this this last time. Um, apparently, our conversation pissed off Jane Cosen of the New York Times. Hi, Jane. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I I do think it. We have to we have to reopen some of these questions. Well, and the um, problem the problem with that is, by the way, is you know I, I think people in positions of power are fair game for journalists in fact that's a big part of what i do but the reason there's a podcasting boom right now and an independent media boom right now is that people feel like they can't have this conversation openly without being the subject of a bad faith uh new york times hit piece and oh, I, I know i know but like that's why like as a culture it's hard to have that conversation even to have a debate like the spencer is Spencer's thread? I commend it to people. Um, it, it is something that is is territory. A lot of people don't want to tread on, especially a lot of people in media. And and part of that is because it's this you know culture of um, just assuming or not even assuming, but just like taking bits and pieces and um, you know not letting people have the space to to participate in these arguments in good faith um, without, you know, fear of uh, unfair retribution. Now, if you do something that warrants retribution, by all means, enjoy the retribution. Um, but having simply asking questions and having a conversation in a public space or in the public sphere, uh, the public discourse, uh, I think, you know, the the fear of of treading in these areas or, or towing these lines is, is genuinely problematic because uh, to me, it's always been strange that the left is on board with criticizing the industrial revolution um, and, and not, you know, something that is inextricably intertwined with the industrial revolution in the most obvious ways. And that's the sexual revolution where you have uh, commercialized abortion care. You know, abortion has been happening as long as humans have been alive. But what happens now is totally different where you have birth control pills um, and all of the, the consequences that Louise Perry and Mary Harrington have done poignant work addressing. Um, 
this, this, these things are inextricably intertwined. And uh, yes, we're talking about just particularly women, women's roles in society when we talk about Mary and Louise. But uh, also, I, I don't think it's, it's obviously not a coincidence, a, a coincidence that the norms in the West right now surrounding sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism um, are at a very different place uh, than, than we've really seen in a long time. Yes, there's been um, you know, gender fluidity in different cultures on different scales at different periods. But what we're seeing now is, is definitely uh, novel on the scale that we're seeing it on. What, the, the sort of Tavistock treatment um, that has been walked back. Like this stuff is new territory and it's obviously a consequence of uh, industrialization because of technology that changed the way fundamentally we react and we relate to each other. Um, and, and I just feel like one of the most important things that can happen in our politics is to understand and for, for there to be a realization collectively that we are, uh, that is, that is first and foremost, the world in which we're operating. It's like, if we can all accept the predicate of hyper novelty um, and go from there, just realize that we're guinea pigs in this like incredible experiment since the printing press. <laughs> Like go from there and not say that we throw the baby out with the bathwater, get rid of all this amazing medicine and books and and wonderful things like that. But but question fundamentally, what is uh, healthy for humans? Uh, What norms are healthy for humans? Um, And and I'm sure someone listening is going to say that I'm saying, you know, everything is unhealthy for humans. But the norms, um, I I think that is genuinely a question. And I would use an example I think we talked about last month, which is drag. Um, Is it healthy for drag to be a product for children? children. Plenty of dissident drag queens would say, no, it doesn't belong anywhere near children. And you are ruining the art form by putting it in public libraries. You're diluting it to the point of meaninglessness because it is necessarily countercultural and it thrives as a subculture. Um, That you can't even say that. I mean, a few people can say that, but you, you can't even have that conversation on the left right now. Yeah, I mean, this this really does go back to the third way, right? So there's sort of three options in front of us. Um, one is, in my view, is sort of pretend, to play pretend that we can divorce these final stop consequences from the rest of the sexual revolution um, as though that has nothing to do with it. Now, that doesn't mean that inevitably A leads to B leads to C always, or I guess I should say L leads to B leads to T. <laughs> um, <laughs> But (laughs) I actually think, like I've said many times, I actually think that transgenderism is much more downstream from feminism that denies sex differences uh, than it is from acceptance of homosexuality. That being said, something like gay marriage could only become accepted in a cultural like moment or or uh, a culture that accepts the idea that maleness and femaleness and the complementarity between them are not essential to marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it has to be downstream of the sexual revolution. I think it's actually personally, I think it's one of the less uh, pernicious consequences of the sexual revolution. Yeah. Um, But but it it, it is it seems to me to be playing pretend to imagine that that uh, we can completely divorce gay marriage and and acceptance of homosexuality more broadly from the other consequences of the sexual revolution. And we can pretend that this transgender uh, sort of stop on the train is completely different from the feminism that came before it is completely different from the gay acceptance movement that came before it. That just seems to me a little bit of revisionist history. Um, 
on the other hand, we have this option that, you know, most of us don't want to take except the most hardcore people on the right, right? Which is, you know, to say, no, we want, we are going to restore the pre-sexual revolution norms. Now, first of all, my biggest objection to this has always been how. <laughs> uh, the obvious answer to that is uh, a Catholic monarchy. <laughs> it's like, except sexual revolution is the uh, is wrong, step one, and then like a bunch of question marks, and then restore sexual, pre-sexual revolutionary norms. and Papal uh, supremacy, yeah. I gotta ask. Uh, I gotta ask a podcast with someone on the left. Impossible to change sexual mores. Obviously, the left has done that very effectively. Um, But you know, it's sort of a big question mark to me as to how. And furthermore, it's not clear to me. um, Even laying aside what's popular, I mean, last time we said we don't want to live in Uganda, right? (laughs) Um, They're they're controversial. I think both of us probably do want to live in a society where there is a certain amount of tolerance for. Um, for subcultures and which apparently is very offensive to say that being gay is a subculture, even though it's obviously a sexual minority. Anyway, that's a side. But um, so, you know, there's a certain amount of co- tolerance for subcultures. And actually, this guy named Ed Krasenstein, who I'd been blissfully unaware of until oh, now. Oh, Krasenstein. Yes, you were unaware of Krasenstein? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was blissful. Um, I was blissfully ignorant of Ed Krasenstein. But I, he actually, so in an attempted dunk on DeSantis, I think he actually brought out a really great comparison. Um, so he was talking about there, there's videos, mostly a lot of them from New York. I mean, we walked by some of these right in um, Washington Square Park and in Tompkins Square Park. Right. Uh, over the last weekend, there were naked pride celebrations with like naked people running all around. Of course, this is a public park. There are people with children there. Right. Um, Jarrett should not have done that. I'm just picking on Jared today. <laughs> yeah, this is like the pick on Jared podcast. He's not here to defend himself. No, he's he's, uh, he, he's like a Christian boy. He uh, he's he's even more horrified than me whenever he sees this stuff because like he grew up in Christian school and he's like, why are there naked adults splashing in the public fountain? Um, Stepman, one of the good ones for sure. <laughs> um, no, but but like this this. So this guy, Ed Krasnerstein, who, again, I was not familiar with until now, um, <laughs> but he he tries to dunk on the people complaining about these videos in New York and elsewhere of adults naked dancing around with children present, right, um, exposing themselves to children. And he's, he's like says, well, what about nude beaches in Florida? Mm-hmm. Okay, And then Florida is not the only place with nude beaches. Most most coastal states in the U.S. have several at least nude beaches out there. Um, and actually, I think it's a great comparison, just not in the way that he's talking about, because nude beaches and nude colonies are a subculture in America that has had absolutely zero purchase on the mainstream. Yes, no yes. one no one goes to a nude beach not knowing what it is. They put out big signs everywhere saying, hey, there's going to be naked people on this beach. And if you don't like that, you don't go. Right. Um, it's it's not in our children's curriculum in public schools. There's no unit there's no month celebrating nudity on beaches and nudist colonies. There's no chapter in the history textbook about uh, the oppression of nudist colonies mm-hmm. in the United States, right? Um, essentially, in all ways, you can avoid nude beaches and nudist colonies in the United States um, culturally and in the public square unless you seek them out. Right. And actually, I think this is the third way to, to go back to the two options where we have, you know, okay, completely roll back the sexual revolution and all of its its consequences, okay, 
I don't know if that's even possible, but also that does seem to us moderns a bit harsh. Um, and then on, on the flip side, it's, you know, pretend that these things have nothing to do with each other. Um, it seems to me that Polya has really driven a truck through the middle um, mm. and, and said, no, like, we need to be able to establish a, a sort of family sex difference affirming norm in the public square. And then we can be tolerant of subcultures as long as they hold up their end of the bargain, which is not to be aggressively encroaching constantly into the public square and demanding fealty and acceptance. Yes. And that just requires a consensus, uh, a, a consensus on healthy norms. And we have not always had that in that in, in this country. In fact, like the nude beaches is such a good example of pluralism working, right? That like, this is yeah. really not harming anyone. The laws allow for it. People do their thing and, and it doesn't cause immense social discord. But we've had problems with this in the past. Obviously, the most obvious example being there was uh, a norm with a wide swath of the public that, um, you know, if you were black, you were subhuman and were therefore it was it was fair to subjugate you to the white man. And this was a very fundamental disagreement. And we now look at that rightfully as abhorrent. But it was a fundamental disagreement that, like, can a country function where you don't agree on the concept of humanity? If you don't agree on what constitutes a human being and what constitutes sub a subhuman being. And and that is, you know, on a in it was on a bigger scale, but I think what scares me is that we're seeing like sort of the early phases of something like that on sex and something like that, even on, on humans again, especially as we get into like, we don't have to dive into this now, but like uh, reproductive technology when it comes to IVF and, and embryos, et cetera, et cetera. Like when we cannot, there was a brief period in American history that feels like it was uh, for most of us, you know, much more sort of these, these halcyon days where we where pluralism was working sort of post Jim Crow. And yes, there were still problems, but like uh, from 1964 until uh, I don't know, like 2012 when the Trayvon Martin, then Michael Brown and that bull, that ball starts rolling down the hill. Um, and, and we start seeing some of this stuff come to the fore again. Uh, it felt like pluralism on racial sexual questions was uh, by a lar- by and large part allowing for a, a flourishing in everyday life for the average American. And that's not to say everyone, but it is to say the average American, like this project was working and, and pluralism doesn't work when you can't have some of those basic definitions met. It, it You can, if, if you have these, these healthy norms where everyone agrees on basic definitions, yes. But when you start to break down um, that, that sort of consensus about what should constitute a norm um, and, and threatens healthier norms. Um, like what is a norm for marriage? What is a norm for um, a locker room or a bathroom? I mean, that's part of uh, the the second wave is, is getting women single sex spaces so that they would be safe when they had to go to the bathroom. And when you lose that, you lose your ability to exist together um, and you lose your ability to, to be a pluralist society. And, and that's what really scares me right now. There, there is actually no contradiction between saying that the married um, progenitive, I guess is the word I'm looking at, uh, family deserves a, a sort of central and special place in our norms, um, that, that it deserves to be the ideal propagated in the public square. And there is actually no contradiction between that and saying, you know, we we love our gay friends, our gay family members. Um, we want them to have 
you know, uh, safety from legal persecution. We don't want to, um, we, we want to find some way of recognizing their relationships, right, uh, as as distinct from other relationships. Uh, there actually isn't a contradiction between saying we want to propagate and propagate an idea in in of normalcy in the in the public square, and then saying, okay, um, there are people whose lives are not going to look like this ideal at all. They're going to look very different, um, and that's also okay. Uh, but we seem to have enormous difficulty maintaining uh, a mainstream standard. Um, yeah. and, and I think that, has been, that actually in that case, right, it, it erodes our ability to live together. It makes it into what you're saying is this sort of war against of all against all, right? Um, it erodes our ability to actually tolerate one another, um, when it's just a matter of, of, uh, you know, <laughs> of, of, uh, planting your flag, LOL, um, <laughs> planting your flag in the public square, right? Um, that is actually what, what small L liberalism is, is having that space uh, between the mainstream and the counterculture, the space between what's, you know, demanded and what's forbidden. Um, uh, but before we wrap up here and I'll let you go, I wanted to turn to something that I think is very much on point with what all the things that you are always discussing about hyper novelty, about the introduction of the iPhone um, and, and transhumanism. Um, and, and just a lot of the issues, especially that the youngest uh, generation seems to be having, the youngest generation hitting adulthood, right, Gen Z, and then the, I guess Generation Alpha after them at this point. Um, That's what the this- next generation's called, Alpha? Yeah, we had to recycle back around to the beginning. Wow, okay, I was wondering that, so thank you for yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll pick up a new name, right? We have Zoomers now. Um, yeah. as opposed to Gen Z, but I'm sure they'll pick up a new name. Gen Y was millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so there's this new survey out and it shows um, basically uh, data, a percentage of 8th, 10th, and 12th graders who agree to these three statements. The first is, I can't do anything right. My life is not useful. I do not enjoy life. So those are the three statements and they're using it as a proxy for depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um and every single one of those answers for 8th, 10th, and 12th graders starts shooting up right around 2013 to the point where initially it's, you know, numbers in the, the, the mid-20s for most of these statements um, goes all the way up where all three of these grades, it's, it's approaching the 50% mark of mm. um, basically young people in middle school and high school that are agreeing with these statements um, that sound very depressive, right? You know, what, <laughs> I guess we've talked in a lot, um, talked a lot about why that's happening and how, you know, social media and, and iPhone might be related to it. Uh, worth saying that it explodes in 2013, which is a little bit different mm-hmm. from some of the, the Gene Twenge narrative about 2007. Um, what, what do you think is driving this? Do you think that this is, do you think it's real or do you think that people are trying to get cachet? I mean, there could be a little bit of both. I don't know. What do you think is happening here? Because like 50% of teenagers basically saying their lives, they don't enjoy their lives is pretty uh, shocking and scary. 
I've always thought it was real. And I think that the proof of that, as Abigail Schreier has rightfully pointed out, is in some of the expressions of angst. Um, for instance, the, the social contagion that we've seen in different schools of transgenderism, that uh, when you talk to young girls, um, is a manifestation very clearly of depression and anxiety. Um, and, you know, it's... <sighs> The, the twenty thing, it, it, to, to your point, I, I think there's also, and I think she's talked about this, the 2013 versus 2007, 2013, what you really have is a proliferation of the iPhone and like critical mass of iPhones um, and the combination in a way that didn't exist in 2007, the combination of um, critical mass iPhones and social media. So when you combine, uh, this is, it's, it's all sounds really specific, but when you combine the fact that you have a smartphone with the fact that you also have social media on that smartphone, phone, um, meaning that instead of having to be tethered to a landline, uh, you have it everywhere you go. And at every second of the day, you could be getting the best or worst news of your life um, from this little box in your pocket. That is why you get pocket vibrations like that's or phantom vibrations. That's what the phenomenon is. It's because um, it's a very rational uh, and obviously, like it's it's hyper rational when you're talking about depression and anxiety, but a constant need to look at this box is truly rational when you consider what could be on that box at any given moment. Um, and and the studies I think are especially alarming that our brain functions differently just when our phone is in in the room versus when the phone's not in the room. So when there's that possibility of checking versus that possibility versus no possibility of checking, um, everything we need to know about what these things are doing to psychology is is right there and just uh, recently been talking uh, someone through a breakup and the level of anxiety that they're feeling. I, I was just thinking, you know, in the 1970s, you would be at home alone and just like waiting by the phone, right? There are a million songs about waiting by the phone. Um, but now there's really no escape from that because you can go to the movies, you go to the mall, you can go on a run and you basically have to take your phone in case of an emergency um, unless you have like one of those light phones or whatever. But even then they still have SMS. So you, you just can never escape the possibility that someone's texting you and like that someone is, is saying something bad or saying something good or any of those things, it is now inescapable and it's entirely rational for those things to make you anxious and, and depressed um, just from a, a purely sort of biological standpoint. So uh, it's weird for us to sit here and talk about these numbers um, because it, to me, it's just like the we have to be calm in this space. But like this is an emergency. This is a five alarm fire. Those those numbers and and they don't they're not like varying greatly. Like this is constantly what we're seeing um, over and over again for years now. And it is a public health emergency. Um, but in an even more immediate sense than I think obesity is. Like this is a a very serious threat. It is changing the way people are going to be now, but also thirty years from now because they couldn't get over their anxiety and depression to start a family um, because you, you know what I mean? Like this is the, the effects of what are, is happening exactly right now. If, if we don't get a hold on it are going to be felt. I mean, already we know they're going to be, they're going to ripple into uh, the next century and, and in a, not a, not a good way, unless this is all used for the good of, of turning the ship around and, and coming up with a way to have this technology healthily exist, healthily have a business community that promotes healthy uh, use of it. So I think it's a five alarm fire, and, uh, you know, it's it's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, as I feel like we always have these two polls every time one of these a new data point comes out in this discussion between your emphasis on technology, which I don't disagree with. But correspondingly, I mean, um, I know that you agree with us a lot as well, but the, the sort of Mary Everstadt mm -hmm. thesis that we 
are we do not have enough in real life relationships to pull us out of that. Because if yeah. I, even if I think personally about what the only times that I stop checking my phone really, and I forget about the little vibrating thing in my pocket, um, is when I'm in real life, right, talking to people that I care about, people that I Me. love, my family, right. Um, when when I sit down to dinner with my friends, I'm not constantly checking my phone. Right. right. I, I, I'm aware of it in, in the way that you're saying, like, if, if I if I get a phone call, for example, and I, I look down and it's, you know, um, a close friend or, or a family member, then I feel the need to pick it up or, you know, at least to text them back and see if anything, you know, is the matter or whatever. But I do tend to forget. I think those in real life um, relationships are so much more compelling that it almost with it's almost easy when you start to actually enjoy those relationships it pulls you out it's not even a matter of like oh denying yourself the ability to check it's it is just so much more compelling it's almost in the same way that c.s lewis wrote about heaven and hell right that he has this conception of heaven as hyper real right where even the blades of grass actually if you don't belong in heaven like they hurt your feet they're like diamonds under feet because actually that's so much more real i feel like one of the problems with being born as a fully digitally immersed generation is a lot of people in Gen Z and then I'm sure even younger, they don't have that. They haven't actually experienced how beautiful reality is and how much no. more compelling reality is than the virtual most of the time. And that's, that's a really hard thing to describe without sounding like sort of out of touch, old fogey, like, uh, you know, in the same way that C.S. Lewis talks about heaven, like it's impossible to describe to the denizens of hell what it is. They yes. experience it as like this exterior bizarre thing that they can't really uh, enjoy or interact with because they just don't have that experience. But there's a real glass half full take to that. And I was actually talking to some students today about this very thing in that the reason they're anxious and depressed is I think human nature is, is giving them this nagging sense that they're missing something deep because they do have those moments from time to time with compelling personal relationships where they've just talked all night and not looked at their phone. That happens just by being human. It doesn't happen as much. It's not the norm. It's not the default um, for them anymore, but they have that nagging, nagging sense that they're really missing out on something. And, and, you know, the glass half empty take is a really persuasive one too. Um, although I say this as a pessimist, I actually am very persuaded by the glass half full take that there's just something deep tugging at them, telling them something is wrong. And uh, that, that could, can bring them to what's right. That could be their sort of North star because it's miserable and inescapable. And the only way out is to, to find reality. Um, so that's the, the glass half full take. And I fully understand pessimism about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and uh, we'll wrap it up there, but I think obviously another large piece of this that we've discussed at other times is uh, our secular society really doesn't have an account of suffering. And so I think mm -hmm. when people do encounter suffering, they don't, have a framework. It both makes them very narcissistic because it's easy to solipsistically imagine yourself to be the only one who's suffering. Um, and, and they also don't have like any it's either secular or ancient framework, right? Um, mm. Stoicism is also not a, a widespread philosophy. I mean, there's just, there, there is no framework for suffering um, except a sort of patho pathologized or medical framework where like, oh, there's something broken in you because you're suffering. Um, you know, we need to give you a pill or we need to like fix that. Um, or we need even worse, we need to fix the world so that there's no suffering. 
Right. Um, and, and all of those things are just not the best frameworks in which to deal with suffering, in my opinion. But uh, we got to let Emily go because she's a busy lady. Um, <laughs> Emily, thanks again for coming on After Dark. Once again, uh, we do these these wrap up episodes at the end of each month. Uh, the last Wednesday of each month are dedicated to Emily and I talking about the things that we think matter. So that's Emily Jashinsky. You can check her work out at The Federalist and at um, Breaking Point slash Counterpoints. Um, <laughs> and... Thanks to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, as always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Pod- Podcasts, uh, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>